All right, here we are. Jesse McDougal with the Martial Arts of Money. Uh, doing some more um, vlogging today. Uh, we're going to do this one here. Is entitled Principles by Ray Dalio. This book is an absolute masterpiece. If you're an entrepreneur, you have to read this book. You just have to. But you don't really have to. It's your life. You can do what you want. But if you want to progress in the martial arts of money, um, this is going to be a required reading if you're going to reach the black belt level. So uh, this chapter here, uh, I, I need to preface that I'm quite far into this book. I'm at 370 pages into it. Uh, I've got my mastermind meeting in, a, is it a half hour? Shoot, I don't even know, man. Okay, well, let's rip through this then. Um, actually, no, I should check my calendar. One second here. When it comes to other people's time, you have to respect it. Okay, 1.30, no, we're good. All right. Next Friday, I got no surgery. Okay, cool. Anyways, believe it, believability. Weigh your decision making. So I just want to say before I start reading, um, what I'm doing, I found kind of like a, a super growth hack. Um, I'm reading Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kamen. Absolute masterpiece. And I'm reading Ray Dalio's Principles at the same time. And so that's important to pause and communicate the benefits of doing this. So the thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kamen, he's a, he's a scientist of the mind. Uh, just an amazing human being. Uh, and Mr. Dalio is, you know, a multi-billionaire and an amazing human being. So I'm combining two masterpieces from like a science side, bringing my, my mental martial arts up to another level, but then combining with practical matters of the business world from an absolute tycoon. So that's cool. This chapter is called, it's number five, and I think it's the life lessons, believability, weigh your decision making. So now what this is going to do, my brain is already warmed up from the science and mind side of things. And now um, I get to where I'm like, you know, I'm learning a lot, like a lot of stuff that I'm learning and thinking fast and slow, a lot of new thoughts, but a lot of business stuff. I've been doing business for two decades uh, and then hustling, you know, longer than that. So I can read through the business stuff. I, I get that content, that knowledge a lot easier. But I like to combine the two perspectives into one before I start my day. So here we go. In typical organizations, most decisions are made either autocratically by a top-down leader or democratically where everyone shares their opinions and those opinions that have the most support are implemented. Opinions that have the most support are implemented. Both systems produce inferior decision-making. That's because the best decisions are made by an idea meritocracy with believability-weighted decision-making in which the most capable people work through their disagreements with other capable people who have thought independently about what is true and what to do about it. It is far better to weigh the opinions of more capable decision-makers more heavily than those of less capable decision-makers. This is what we mean by believability-weighting. 
So how do you determine who is capable at what? The most believable opinions are those of people who, one, have repeatedly and successfully accomplished the thing in question, and two, have demonstrated that they can logically explain the cause-effect relationship behind their considerations. When believability weighting is done correctly and consistently, it is the, it is the fairest and most effective decision-making system. It not only produces the best outcomes, but also preserves alignment since even people who disagree with the decision will be able to get behind it. But for this to be the case, the criteria for establishing believability must be objective and trusted by everybody. At Bridgewater, everyone's believability is tracked and measured systematically using tools such as baseball cards and the dot collector that actively record and weigh their experience and track records. In meetings, we regularly take votes about various issues via our dot collector app, which displays both the equal weighted average and the believability weighted results along with each person's vote. Typically, if both the equal weighted average and the believability weighted votes align, we consider the matter resolved and move on. If the two types of votes are at odds, we try again to resolve them, and if we can't, we go with the believability-weighted vote. Depending on what type of decision it is, in some cases, a single responsible party, RP, can override a believability-weighted vote. In others, the believability-weighted vote supersedes the RP's decision. But in all cases, believability-weighted votes are taken seriously when there is Disagreement, even in cases in which RPs can overrule the believability uh, weighted vote. The onus is on the RP to try to resolve the dispute before overruling it. In my 40 years at Bridgewater, I never made a decision contrary to the believability weighted decision because I felt that to do so was arrogant and to counter the spirit of idea meritocracy. Though I argued like hell for what I thought was best. I want to pause here and just say this is high level conversation this is high value literature i should say okay and this is where i start talking orca an eagle versus a penguin or a mouse narrow perspective versus wide perspective okay so here we're going to put on our orca costume we're going to put on our eagle costume to give you an example of what this process looks like in action, during the spring of 2012, our research teams used believability-weighted decision-making to resolve a disagreement about what would happen next as the European debt crisis was heating up. At that time, the borrowing and debt service needs of the government of Italy, Ireland, Greece, Portugal, and especially Spain had reached levels that far exceed their abilities to pay. We knew that the European Central Bank would either have to make unprecedented purchases of government bonds or allow the debt crisis to worse, worsen to the point where defaults and the breakup of the Eurozone would probably occur. I want to preface that um, I am of the opinion that debt is like the root of all evil or something along that. Don't get too so specific and whatever. And But debt is like drugs. Germany was admittedly adamantly opposed to a bailout. It was, yeah, right? Because they're smart. 
Um, yeah, <laughs> I want to say, uh, if you ever heard of a, a Confessions of an Economic Hitman, I uh, actually got a friend of mine who is, he's trying to, he's got the rights to that movie, the book, e e Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Uh, my friend is actually trying to bring that to uh, screen. It was clear that the fates of these countries, economies, and the Eurozone itself depended on how well Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, orchestrated the ECB's next move. But what would he do? <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm glad I don't even have to entertain these conversations. Like analyzing a chessboard to visualize the implications and the inclination of the different moves and different players of each, us looked at the situation from a different, from every angle. And this is a great example for if you're an entrepreneur, do this for your business right here. It's a good, now, like analyzing a chessboard, which is your business machine, to visualize the implications and the inclinations of the different moves of the different players. Each of us looked at the situation from a different angle. After a lot of discussion, we remained split. About half of us thought the ECB would print more money to buy bonds, and about half thought they wouldn't, because breaking with the Germans would threaten the Eurozone even more. While such thoughtful and open exchanges are essential, it's also critical to have mutually agreed upon ways of resolving them to arrive at the best decision. So we used our believability weighting system to break the stalemate. We did that using our dot collector tool, which helps us surface the sources of our disagreements and people's different thinking characteristics and work our way through them based on their believabilities. People have different believability weightings for different qualities, like expertise in a particular subject, creativity, ability to synthesize, etc. These dots are determined by a mixture of ratings, both from peers and tests of different sorts. By looking at these attributes and also understanding which thinking qualities are more, most essential to situation at hand, we can make the best decisions. In this case, we took a believability weighted vote with the quality, qualities chosen being both subject matter expertise and the ability to synthesize. So what they're doing here is pre-planning. We took a believability weighted vote with the qualities chosen. So like which skills you need for the task, uh, which are for the result you're trying to achieve or the problem you're trying to solve. Apologize that I'm talking so fast and reading so fast, but I, I'm in work mode right now. Uh, like I've only got so much time and I really got to, you know, I've got a lot of stuff to get done. So uh, I'm not trying to push any hidden agendas. Um, if you're ever dealing with salespeople in any business environment where someone, it comes down to break the penguin logic down to it where a dollar goes out of your pocket into their pocket. If they're talking super fast to you, proceed with caution. Usually if they're talking super fast to you, it's because um, they're trying to push their agenda. They talk so fast that you, you can't, you just don't have time to communicate every point or, you know, to, that you might disagree or see differently. And that's when you start to lose money. Um, subject matter expertise and the ability to synthesize. Hmm. What do, I mean, I'm going to look up what does synthesize mean? Ah, to form combining parts or elements. Sweet. So you got to I got to synthesize uh, my machine. 
It's like you've got to synthesize your life machine. Using the dot collector, it became clear that those with greater believability believed Draghi would defy Germany and print money. So that is what we went with a few days later. Yeah, because you have to make a bet. You have to pull the trigger and make a bet. You can't just sit in a theoretical world and read books. You have to take action. A few days later, European policymakers announced a sweeping plan to buy unlimited quantities of government bonds. So we got it right. They locked out. While the believability, you know, quote, lucked out. While the believability weighted answer isn't always the best answer, we have found that it is more likely to be right than either the boss's answer or an equal weighted referendum. Regardless of whether or not you use this kind of technology and structured process for believability weighting, the most important thing is that you get the concept. Simply look down on yourself and your team. Uh, I wish I had a team. When I do have a team, when a decision needs to be made and consider who is most likely to be right, I assure you that if you do, you will make better decisions than if you don't. 5.1. Recognizing, recognize that having an effective idea meritocracy requires that you understand the merit of each person's ideas. And I want to pause and look up the definition of meritocracy. Oh, cool. An elite group of people whose progress is based on ability and talent rather than on class or privilege or wealth. Wow. I don't want to be an elite group of people. Well, I'm just going to build it. See here. Having a hierarchy of merit is not only consistent with an idea meritocracy, but essential for it. It's simply not possible for everyone to debate everything all the time and still get their work done. Exactly. Treating all people equally is more likely to lead away from the truth than towards it. But at the same time, all views should be considered in an open-minded way. Though placed in the proper context of the experiences and track records of people expressing them. Imagine if a group of us were getting a lesson in how to play baseball from Babe Ruth and someone who's never played the game kept interrupting him to debate on how to swing the bat. Yeah, that's true. Would it be helpful or harmful to the group's pro progress to ignore uh, their different track records and experience? Of course, it would be harmful and plain silly to treat their points of view equally because they have different levels of believability. The most productive approach would be to allow Ruth to give his instructions uninterrupted and then make some time afterwards to answer questions. But because I'm pretty extreme in believe believing that it is important to obtain understanding rather than accepting doctrine at face value, I would encourage the new batter not to accept what Ruth has to say as right just because he was the greatest slugger of all time. Ah, see, this is gold. I would encourage the new batter not to accept what Ruth has to say as right just because he was the greatest slugger of all time. If I were the new batter, I wouldn't stop questioning Ruth until I was confident I found the truth. Bingo. For my business, I, I, I need more information and resources. That's what I need. If you can't successfully do something, don't think you can tell others how it should be done. Bingo. I have seen some people who have repeated failed, repeatedly failed at something hold, something hold strongly to their 
opinions of how it should be done, even when their opinions are at odds with those who have repeatedly done it successfully. Whoa. That is not. That is dumb and arrogant. Yep. Exactly. They should instead ask questions and seek believability-weighted votes to help them get out of their intransigence. Remember that everyone has opinions and they are often bad. Opinions are easy to produce. Everyone has plenty of them. Most people are eager to share them, even to fight for them. Unfortunately, many are worthless or even harmful, including a lot of your own. 5.2. Find the most believable people possible who disagree with you and try to understand their reasoning. Having open-minded conversations with believable people who disagree with you is the quickest way to get an education and to increase your probability of being right. Okay, we're going to pause and reread that and highlight it. Having open-minded conversations. Yeah, I, I don't have any interest in talking on deaf ears. Is this person open-minded, yes or no? That's my first question. <sighs> With believable people, is this person believable? Who disagree with you is the quickest way to get an education and to increase your probability of being right. Huh. So if I invite more people on my podcast, yeah, it's my best way to get my education and increasing my chances of being right. And I don't need much money coming into my internet machine for me to build my team back up again. I've already built the team twice. So that's interesting. So I like where this is going. Um, I think it's fairly unprecedented too. Cool. Uh, think about people's believability in order to assess the likelihood that their opinions are good. While it pays to be open-minded, you also have to be discerning. Remember that the quality of the life you will get de depend largely on the quality of the decisions that you make as you pursue your goals. Remember that the quality of life you will get will depend largely on the quality of decisions that you make as you pursue your goals. Bingo. The best way to make great decisions is to know how to triangulate with other more knowledgeable people. So be discerning about whom you triangulate with and skilled in the way you do it. triangulate your perspective i've learned a kind of a, a hack so this will be under the, men, the mental martial arts side of things anytime you're in a conversation you say the word i think i th in math terms or economic terms i think equals perspective one plus perspective two plus your own perspective equals your final thought. And that final thought, by triangulating your perspective, I can assure you, will increase the chances of you making a better decision. Fact. The dilemma you face is trying to understand 
as accurately as you can what's true in order to make decisions effectively while realizing many of the opinions you will hear won't be worth much, including your own. Think about people's believability, which is a function of their capabilities and their willingness to say what they think. Keep their track records in mind. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. I noticed that. For professional skepticism here, when engaging with other humans, if someone's being narrow-minded, it's I see it as two reasons. Reason one, they're just narrow-minded. They lack the higher perspective mentality. That's just a level of intelligence and whatever, okay? And now there's the other side of it where... They don't want to say what they think. And through my experience, it's been so that the people not speaking what they think is often the case. So I think to myself, how do I get, I don't want to be around those people. I want to be around the other kinds of people. One way I can do that is by inviting people on the podcast but that's kind of stagnant I, I i feel like um you know organization be around other people um yeah i don't know i don't have that answer and that's okay here i am today let's keep moving forward remember that believable options are most likely to come from people who have successfully accomplished the thing in question at least three times and who have great explanations of the cause and effect relationship that lead them to their conclusions. Treat those who have neither as not believable, those who have one as somewhat believable, and those who have both and the most believable. Be especially wary of those who comment from the stands without having played on the field themselves and who don't have good logic, as they are dangerous to themselves and others. If someone hasn't, so I want to read that last part again. Be especially wary of those who comment from the stands without having played on the field themselves and who have good logic as they are dangerous to themselves and others. Now, I'm thinking of one person in particular. I don't mention names, obviously, but, you know, people bullshit, you know, and, uh, I don't BS, but I'm learning I have to. There's a bit of, I got to be uh, less square, a little more round, soft around the edges, I guess. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But if someone's coming, someone's a bit ignorant, and you know if you're smarter than them and you're seeing angles, and you're like, oh, you're just, you're a bit ahead of them, and that's okay. Like, just as long as they're coming with honest, good intentions, you know, accept it for what it is and understand that. The, the conversation you're having is an opportunity for the other person to grow. Uh, I've learned human nature is aggressive takers for the most part. So um, I like to create scenarios and conversations where both people exchange perspectives. You can exchange per perspectives. It's an opportunity to grow. And uh, growth is my definition of success.
Those are the facts. If someone hasn't done something but has a theory that seems logical and can be stress tested, then by all means test it. Keep in mind that you are playing probabilities. Don't pay as much attention to people's conclusions as to the reasoning that led them to their conclusions. It's common for conversations to consist of people sharing their conclusions rather than exploring the reasoning that led to those conclusions. Ah, as a result, there is an overabundance of confidently expressed bad opinions. Yeah, careful when you form your opinion, man. I break everything down to numbers. If I can't break the, the opinion down to math, well, then I'm, I'm speculating. And it's okay to speculate. Just be aware that you're speculating. And then if you have your opinion and you're speculating, well, then you want to triangulate your perspective. Your perspective plus two other perspectives for people that are believability and that have achieved uh, three times at least what you're trying to achieve. That's going to increase your chances of making a probable decision, a favorable decision. Inexperienced people can have great ideas too, sometimes far better ones than more experienced people. Bingo. That's because experienced thinkers can get stuck in their old ways. Bingo. I felt this working in the accounting firms and I just, it's a kind of like a, a there's a process to it, like a record player. Same, well, there's this, this saying, what's your account do for you this year? Well, the same thing it did last year. And that's because we're a services-based business. There's kind of a, a rhythm uh, to, for accounting services. Uh, and it, for me, it just got a bit boring. Um, but now that I'm looking at the Orc accounting, I'm just like, wow, this is a way I could really, really sit, help people and make them more money and change, change lives for the better. So my whole mantra is coming to help people because I need their help. I need to get paid. And, uh, and they need accounting. One thing I'm learning through personal experience so far, subject to change, is that a lot of people aren't even happy with your accountant. And that's kind of scary because your accountant is supposed to be a key key member on your team. Uh, if you got a good ear, you'll be able to tell when an inexperienced person is reasoning well. Like knowing whether someone can sing, it doesn't take a lot of time. Sometimes a person only has to sing a few bars for you to hear how well they can sing. Bingo. Reasoning is the same. It often doesn't take a lot of time to figure out if someone can do it. F. Everyone should be up front in expressing how confident they are in their thoughts. I like that. That works for me. A suggestion should be called a suggestion. A firmly held conviction should be presented as such, particularly if it's coming from someone with a strong track record in the area in question. Think about whether you are playing a role of a teacher, a student, or a peer. And whether you should be teaching, asking questions, or debating. That's tough. Too often people fail in their disagreements because they either don't know or don't think about how they should engage effectively. They just blurt out whatever they think and argue while everyone has the right and obligation to make sense of everything. Basic rules for engagement should be followed. Those rules and how you should follow them depend on your relative believabilities. For example, it would not be effective for the person who knows less to tell the person who knows more how something should be done. It's important to get the balance between your assertiveness and your open-mindedness right based on your relative levels of understanding of the subject. Think about whether the person you're disagreeing with is more or less believable than you. 
if you are less believable, you are more of a student and should be more open-minded, primarily asking questions in order to understand the logic of the person who is probably knows more. If you're more believable, your role is more of a teacher, primarily conveying your understanding and answering questions. And if you are approximate, if you are approximate peers, you should have a thoughtful, thoughtful exchange as equals. When there is a disagreement about who is more believable, be reasonable and work through it. In cases where you can't do this alone effectively, seek out the help of an agreed-upon third party. In all cases, try to see things through the other person's eyes so that you can obtain understanding. All parties should remember that the purpose of debate is to get at truth. I like that. All parties should remember that the purpose of the debate is to get to the truth, not to prove that someone is right or wrong. And that each party should be willing to change their mind based on the logic and evidence. It is more important uh, than that the student understand the teacher than that the teacher understand the student. Yep. Though both are important. I have often seen less believable people. Students insist the more believable teachers understand their thinking and prove why the teacher is wrong before listening to what the teacher uh what the teacher, the more believable party, has to say. That's backwards. While unentangling the student's thinking can be helpful, it is typically difficult and time-consuming and puts emphasis on what the student sees instead of what the teacher wants to convey. For that reason, our protocol is for the student to be open-minded first. Once the student has taken into what the teacher has to offer, both student and teacher will be prepared to untangle and explore the student's perspectives. It is also more time efficient to get in sync this way, which leads to the next principle. Now I wanna pause and add some personal experience here, and this is the martial arts side of things, and I'll combine this also with bodybuilding. I have never done a bodybuilding show, but I have many friends who have. Uh, my best friend died from that um, path. But the martial arts, uh, everybody, You'll have a lot of support, okay? And people want to help you. And they're always telling you what to do. The fact, like, they know what you should be doing. And that's cool. I, I uh, This is where I learned from Randy Couture. I always listen to everyone and show the moves and practice the moves. But at the end of the day, there's certain moves and stuff that's going to work for me in the ring that I'm confident that I know and I make the decision. Uh, and in particular, I, I recall, usually my training partners were just fighters, so... That's how mostly I learned martial arts, except for one time. Um, I just go where the best fighters are, and I train with those fighters, and you become the best fighter. Simple as that. So um, I remember I recalled this one place in Brampton. <clears throat> this guy was like, he had this, uh, or a couple guys, there was two incidences, I don't even get into particulars, but they had this like demeanor dominating, like they controlled me, like they owned me or something. And they were like telling me what I should do and shouldn't do and the way they're talking to me. And and like, you're, I remember the guy warming me up, oh, you're going to listen, you're going to listen to it. Like, and then I find out the guys had one, one or two amateur Muay Thai fights. And I'm like, you're talking to me like you've had 20 or 30 amateur Muay Thai fights, dude. Piss off take a hike and that's that so at the end of the day take the information but you have to make your own kind of um, you know way that's where you get to combine the, the knowledge with the art the martial arts of money okay moving on recognize that while everyone has the right to, 
and responsibility to try to make sense of important things, they must do so with humility and radical open-mindedness. When you are less believable, start by taking on the role of a student in a less in a teacher-student relationship with the appropriate humili humility and open-mindedness. I've done this most of my life, and I'm getting to the point now where those days are over, you know, for the most part. <clears throat> While it is not necessarily you who doesn't understand, you must assume this until you have seen the issue through the eyes, the other's eyes. If the issue still doesn't make sense to you, and you think that your teacher just doesn't get it, appeal to other believable people. If you still can't reach an agreement, assume you're wrong. If, on the other hand, you're able to convince a number of believable people on your point of view, then you should make sure your thinking is heard and considered by the person deciding, probably with the help of other believable parties. Remember that those who are higher in the reporting hierarchy have more people more people they are trying to sort through on an expected value basis to get the best thinking and more people who want to tell them what they think. So they are time constrained and have to play the probabilities. If your thinking has been stress tested by other believable people who support you, it has a greater probability of being heard. Conversely, those higher in the reporting hierarchy must strive to achieve the goal of getting in sync with those lower in the hierarchy about what makes sense. The more people get in sync about what makes sense, the more capable and committed people will be. 5.4. Understanding how people came by their opinions. About three pages left. Our brains work like computers. They input data and process it in accordance with their writing and programming. Any opinion you have is made up of these two things, the data and your processing reasoning. When someone says, I believe X, ask them, what data are you looking at? What reasoning are you using to draw your conclusion? Deal with raw opinions. You'll get... Dealing with raw opinions will get you and everyone else confused. Understand where they come from will help you get to the truth. If you ask someone a question, they will probably give you an answer. So think through to whom you should address your questions. I regularly see people ask totally uninformed or non-believable people questions and get answers they believe. Ooh, that's dogmatic truth. That is bad. This is often worse than having no answers at all. Bingo. Don't make that mistake. You need to think through who the right people are. Now, this is an area that, man, I've had so much money stolen off me over the years um, because I'm at, you know, in business, there's, you have to pay someone money, okay? But often in business, you end up paying the wrong guy too much money. So you need to think through who the right people are. If you're in doubt about someone's believability, find out. The same is true for you. If someone asks you a question, think first whether you're the right person to answer it. Okay, let's see here. I could always like deflect with like, um, I'm probably not the best answer. Like if I'm going to downplay the importance of my opinion, I could say, uh, I might not be the right person. However, if you're not believable, you probably shouldn't have an opinion about what they're asking, let alone share it. So for me, the art of war is uh, thinking espionage here, and espionage is a fairly, fairly new concept to me. I realize I just need more information at this point. So I guess I could ask people questions because uh, people generally want to help people that ask questions, and people judge people based on the questions they ask. 
Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Be sure to direct your comments or questions to the believable, responsible parties or for the issues you want to discuss. Feel free to include others if you think that their input is relative while re reorganizing that the decision will ultimately rest with whoever is responsible for it. Having every, everyone randomly probe everyone else is an unproductive waste of time. For heaven's sake, don't bother directing your questions to people who aren't responsible or worse, still throw your questions out there without directing them at all. And I, this was my, my attempt to contact my PhD buddy uh, in financial economics for where do I get statistics from? I don't know. I just need the data. Give me the numbers and let me go to work. Information's money to me. They say the devil's in the details. I don't like that. The gold is in the details. God is in the details. Positivity. The keys, the doors are in the details. So where do you go to get the uh, world numbers for, for email? Sounds like I got a bit of work to do. Be, uh, be aware of statements that begin with, I think that. Bingo. I just talked about this. Just because someone thinks something doesn't mean it's true. Uh, by especially skeptical of statements that begin with I think and that I, since most people can accurately assess themselves. Assess believability by systematically capturing people's track records over time. Every day is not a new day. Over time, a body of evidence builds up, showing which people can be relied on and which cannot. Track records matter, and at Bridgewater, tools such as baseball cards and dog collectors make everyone's track records available for scrutiny. Disagreements must be done efficiently. And that's cool with the, um, I'm launching, um, uh, and I've wanted this financial report, reporting model five years ago before I even, as soon as I started my company, I want to get this done. It's, uh, I think we're going to call it Orca email. Basically, uh, it, it, and I'm aware I, only the elite have this, and a very few. Uh, how much money you made yesterday is a matter of mathematical fact. Do you know how much money you made yesterday? Yes or no? And I'm talking specifically email marketing. So I want I have reporting systems, but it's manual. So it's, it's challenging to scale. So I need to automate this system. And this is going to help me scale to a million dollars. But this is also a service I can offer to other people. And then over time, people will build a track record. And for me, uh, you know, the, the them, my customers, or me, their accountant, we're going to build... Uh, rapport and they're going to build their track record and I'm going to help guide them to profitability and help change their lives. Disagreeing must be done efficiently. Working oneself through disagreements can be time consuming. So you can imagine how an idea meritocracy where disagreements is not just tolerated but encouraged which is why I don't we're moving into a new place. I got to move tonight actually. Uh, we're not getting a landline because of this reason interrupting and some guy for spam probably could become dysfunctional should i answer it let's see hold on no i would if they called my cell phone could become dysfunctional if it's not managed well imagine how efficient it would be if a teacher ran a large class by asking each of the students individually what they thought and then debated with all of them instead of conveying their own views first and taking questions later people who want to disagree must Keep this in mind and follow the tools and protocols for disagreeing well. Know when to stop debating and when to and 
move on to agreeing about what should be done. I have seen people who agree on major issues waste hours arguing over details. It's more important to do big things well than to do small things perfectly. Let me write that again. It is important to do big things well, bingo, than small things perfectly. This is material versus immaterial, pennies versus quarters. Don't worry about the pennies, worry about the dollars. Set up things conceptually the right way. Win, uh, you know, read the map before you hit the road kind of thing. Uh, but when people disagree on importance of debating something, it probably should be debated. When people disagree on the importance of debating something, it probably should be debated. Operating otherwise would essentially give someone a de facto veto. Use believability waiting as a tool rather than a substitute for decision-making by responsible parties. Believability waiting decision-making is a way of supplementing and challenging the decisions of responsible parties, not overruling them. As Bridgewater's system currently exists, everyone is allowed to give input, but their believability is weighted based on the evidence, their track records, test results, and other data. Responsible parties can overrule believability waiting voting but only at their peril. When a decision maker chooses to bet on his own opinion over the consensus of believable others, he is making a bold statement that will be proven right or wrong by results. Let me read that again. When a decision maker chooses to bet on his own opinion over the consensus of the believable others, he is making a bold statement that will be proven right or wrong by results. Hmm, that is true. And if you're uh, if you're an entrepreneur, you're gonna have to be successful. You're gonna have to go against the grain. And people in your life, you know, family and friends, they love you. Okay, so they're coming with love. And this is when I talked about the crab in the bucket. The crab trying to get out of the bucket. All the other crabs are clawing at him, saying, "No, no, don't get out of the bucket. Don't get out of the bucket." The, the crab on top says, "No, no, let me out of the bucket. Let me out of the bucket." So, um, that's a metaphor for. As an entrepreneur, you're going to have to make your own decisions. And it's against the opinions of most. It just is. Like the rich people is 5% of the world's population. Poor people is 95% in terms of math from like a macroeconomic economist view. Since you don't have the time to thoroughly examine everyone's thinking yourself, choose your believability people wisely. Yeah, I'm, I'm gathering that slowly. Generally, in any relationship in my life, I, I give it the full, full focus, full effort, which is different, I'm noticing. Generally speaking, it's best to choose three believable people who care a lot about achieving the best outcome and who are willing to openly disagree with each other and have their reasoning probed. Of course, the number three isn't set in stone. The group could be larger or smaller. Its ideal size depends on the amount of time available, how important the decision is, how objectively you can assess your own and others' decision-making abilities, and how important it is to have a lot of people understand the reasoning behind the decision. When, you, when you're responsible for a decision, compare the believability-weighting decision-making of the crowd to what you believe. When they're at odds, you should work hard to resolve the disagreement. If you are about to make a decision that the believability weighting consensus thinks is wrong, think very carefully before you proceed. It is likely that you are wrong. But even if you're right, there's a good chance that you lose respect by overruling the process. 
Alexander the Great. You should try hard to get in sync, and if you still can't do it, you should be able to put your finger on exactly what it is you disagree with, understand the risks of being wrong, and clearly explain your reasons and logic to others. If you can't do those things, you probably should suspend your own judgment and go with believability-weighted vote. Recognize that everyone has the right and responsibility to try and make sense of important things. Almost done here. There will come a point in all process of thinking things through when you are faced with choices of requiring the person who sees things differently from you slowly work things through until you see things the same way or going along with the other person even though their thinking still doesn't seem to make sense. I recommend the first path when you when you are disagreeing about something important and the latter when it's important unimportant i understand that the first path can be awkward because the person you are speaking to can get impatient to neutralize that i suggest you simply say let's agree that i am dumb shit but i still need to make sense of this bingo So let's move slowly to make sure that happens. One should always feel free to ask questions while remembering one's obligation to remain open-minded in the discussions that follow. Record your arguments so that if you can't get in sync or make sense of things, you can send it out so others can decide. And of course, remember that you are operating in an idea meritocracy. Be mindful of your own believability. Communications aimed at getting the best answer should involve the most relevant people as a guide the most relevant people to probe are your managers direct reports and or agree experts they are most impacted by and most informed about the issues under discussions and so they are most important parties to be in sync with if you can't get in sync you should escalate the disagreement by raising it to the appropriate level yeah like if you work in the corporate world and you're a manager and you're not reading this book oof oof I shouldn't say that. I should I should switch it positive. That's the accountant in me. So the leadership side of me says, if you're in um, the corporate world, invest in this book, man, and you're going to level up. You're going to feel better at your career. You're going to have a sense of purpose. Uh, I don't. It's going to increase your chances of climbing the corporate ladder and getting big bags of money for sure. Uh, communication aimed at educating or both boosting co should involve a broader set of people that would be needed if the aim were just getting the best answer. Less experienced, less believable people may not be necessary to decide an issue. But if the issue involves them and you aren't in sync with them, the lack of understanding in the long run will likely undermine morale and the organization's efficiency. Ah, so cool. So I've got my mastermind meeting coming up here and, uh, my buddy uh, moved to Medellin, Colombia. He's with tons of internet people. And that's great. Uh, and we've been working subconsciously to get in sync or not. Or, yeah, let's send in some opportunities for some progressive discussion here in this meeting. This is especially important in cases where you have people who are both not believable and highly opinionated with the worst, okay, 
This is especially important in cases where you have people who are both not believable and highly opinionated. That's the worst combination. I want to read this again. Less experienced, less believable people may not be necessary to decide an issue. But if the issue involves them and you are not in sync with them, the lack of understanding in the long run will likely undermine the morale and the organization's efficiency. This is especially important in cases where you have people who are both not believable and highly opinionated, the worst combination. Unless you get in sync with them, you will drive their uninformed opinions underground. If, on the other hand, you are willing to be challenged, you will create an environment in which all criticisms are aired openly. If you are willing to be challenged, you will create an environment in which all criticisms are aired openly. Yeah. The thing I've learned with... Um, It's not, people don't want to be criticized, but you're going to, you're going to be criticized no matter what. And so that's something that a chink in my armor, one of my gaps, it, I'm a bit hot headed. I get heated quickly because I just don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be bullied. I don't want to be downplayed. Like don't get in my way. Just, just don't. Like why would you get in someone's way that's trying to do something? Either support me, support them or get out of their way. Simple as that. Um, so a lot of business owners, that's they work hard. This is their life. And they don't want to be criticized. That's the experts. And it's a big pet peeve. So if I say something or someone says something and you got the one guy that's like, oh, well, he's talking about the one-off scenario where disproves what he said. Man, that is just an absolute pet peeve. It's just like you don't talk. Mouth closed, open ears. Okay, let's finish up here. Recognize that you don't need to make judgments about everything. Think about who is responsible for something and their believability and how much you know about it and your own believability. Don't hold opinions about things you don't know anything about. Bingo. Be super careful when, you're, when I'm forming an opinion. That's what I do. I, I form opinion based on facts. If I don't got the numbers, I just don't know. I, it's undeterminable. It's either likely, unlikely, or undeterminable. That's it. Pay more attention to whether the decision-making system is fair than whether you get your way. An organization is a community with a set of shared values and goals. Its morale and smooth functioning should always take precedence over your need to be right. And besides, you could be wrong. When the decision-making system is consistently well-managed and based on objective criteria, the idea of meritocracy is more important than the happiness of any one of its members, even if that member is you. I want to read that again. When the decision-making system is consistently well-managed and based on objective criteria, the idea of meritocracy is more important than the happiness of any one of its members, even if it's you. Bingo. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, that concludes the chapter of... Uh, chap yeah, chapter. So the next session will be uh, Recognize How to Get Beyond Disagreement. And uh, I want to thank you for your time. If you could follow me on uh, YouTube or join the Martial Arts of Money uh, Facebook group, uh, that'd be super greatly appreciated. That's how you could su support me and support the movement. Um, also, uh, if you're still listening, I, I do want to offer you the uh, eating system that I've created to be an absolute beast. 
I've developed this system over 10 to 15 years. You can go to thesuperioreatingsystem.com or healthycookingmenu.com. If you're listening to this right away and the website isn't up, well, then uh, you can have an opportunity to, to help me. Um, I'm a, <laughs> I've got 230 websites that I'm uh, launching right now, and uh, I've got to get to work. Okay, guys, have a great day, and I hope you found this valuable. Keep on, keep on keeping on. Okay, okay. What's up, Internet? Um, this is an attempt of me trying to get streamlined processes. So this app I'm using, it's called Anchor. And it's a great piece of technology, and y'all should use it if uh, you want to do podcasting and whatnot. Uh, so, what the, this vlog is supposed to do, it's supposed to put the this chapter I'm going to read. It's part four of the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kamen, Nobel Prize winner in economics. Part four, Choices. Chapter 25, Bernoulli's Errors. Now, this is supposed to put this segment into the entire clip, I think, of this print, uh, thinking fast, thinking slow. So, we'll see how that goes. Instead of, because every time I make a, a podcast on Anchor, it just, I publish it as a new episode. So, you can do, like, segments for each episode, kind of like doing series. So, for example, on Medium, you can write, you know, chapters. I probably should start writing my book, The Martial Arts of Money, and start with the chapter. Anyways, out of context, so let's dive right into it. This is 10 pages, probably going to be half hour, 45 minutes. Vlog, it's Saturday morning, 8 a.m. Let's do this. One day in the early 1970s, Amos handed me a mimeographed essay by a Swiss economist named Bruno Frick, which discussed the psychological assumptions of economic theory. I vividly remember the color of the cover, dark red. Bruno Frey barely recalls writing the piece, but I can still recite its first sentence. The agent of economic theory is rational, selfish, and his tastes do not change. Let me read that again. The agent of economic theory is rational selfish and his taste does not change yep that's where no matter what that's where i talk penguin logic and business so economic theory orca eagle but when it comes down to the, the you i think like compare that to like a black belt in jujitsu uh, compared to you can break any business scenario down to a transaction every business scenario has transactions you can break that down to penguin logic so this is like the blue belt of jujitsu the white belt i was astonished my ec economist colleague colleagues worked in the building next door but i had not appreciated the profound difference between our in intellectual worlds to a psychologist it is self-evident that people are neither fully rational nor completely selfish, and that their tastes are anything but stable. Our two disciplines seem to be studying different species, which the behavioral economics Richard Thaler later dubbed econs and humans. Unlike econs, the humans that were psychologists know have a system one. 
their view of the world is limited by the information that is available at the given moment. What you see is all there is. And therefore, they cannot be as consistent and logical as econs. They are sometimes generous and often willing to contribute to the group to which they are attached. And they often have the little idea of what they will like next year or even tomorrow. Here was an opportunity for an interesting conversation across the boundaries of disciplines. I do not anticipate that my career will be defined by the conversation. Soon after he showed me Frey's article, Amos suggested that we make the study of decision-making our next project. I knew nothing about the topic, but Amos was an expert and a star of the field, and he said he would coach me. While still a graduate student, he had co-authored a textbook, Mathematical Psychology. Ooh, interesting. Wow. Mathematical Psychology. Ooh, that's interesting. And he directed me to a few chapters that he thought would be a good introduction. I soon learned that our subject matter would be people's attitudes to risky options and that we would seek to answer a specific question. What rules govern people's choices between different simple gambles and between gambles and sure things? Simple gambles such as 40% chance to win 300 bucks are to students of decision making what the fruit fly is to geneticists. Choices between such gambles provide a simple model that share, shares important features with the more complex decisions that researchers actually aim to understand. Gambles represent the fact that the consequences of choice are never certain. Even ostensibly sure, outcomes are uncertain. When I need to pause and preface. I don't know if I should, but maybe I should. It's the Martial Arts of Money podcast. That's what it is. I guess I can talk whatever I want to talk. I have for sure ways to make money. Like I do with machines. And um, just a side rant here, but... Uh, personal note, it's, <clears throat> I got to tell you, man, it's frustrating knowing that I have a pipeline and I found the gold. Like there's that movie uh, with uh, Matthew McConaughey where they find the gold or whatever and they know the gold's there, but they got to get the gold out. And that's kind of what, where I'm at. That's cool. Anyways, keep going. Sorry about that. I don't even know if I should apologize. Probably shouldn't apologize for that. Anyway, this is new for me. I'm, I'm just learning every day, guys. Uh, when you sign the contract to buy an apartment, you do not know the price at which you later may have to sell it. Nor do you know that your neighbor's son will soon take up the tuba. <laughs> That's like me moving into my new apartment. They don't know Dukester's coming. Uh, every significant choice you make in life comes with some uncertainty, which is why students of decision-making hope that some of the lessons learned in the model situation will be applicable to more interesting everyday problems. But of course, the main reason that decision theorists study simple gambles is that this is what other decision theorists do. The field had a theory, expected utility theory, which was the foundation of rational agent model and is to this day the most important theory in the social sciences. Expected utility theory was not intended as a psychological model. It was a logical, it was a logic of choice. 
Based on elementary rules, axioms of rationality, consider this simple. If you have an, if you prefer an apple to a banana, then you are, you also prefer 10% chance to win an apple to a 10% chance to win a banana. The apple and the banana stand for objects of choice, including gambles, and the 10% stands for any probability. The mathematician John von Neumann, one of the giant intellectual figures of the 20th century, and the economist Oscar Morgenstern, had derived their theory of rational choice. Between gambles from a few axioms, economists adopted expected utility theory in a dual rule as a logic that prescribes how decisions should be made. And as a description of how econs make choices, Amos and I were psychologists. However, we set out to understand how humans actually make risky choices without assuming anything about their rationality. We maintained our routine of spending many hours each day in conversation, sometimes in our offices, sometimes at restaurants, often on long walks through quiet streets of beautiful Jerusalem. I I want to work like this guy so I don't know where you go or how you work with people that work like this but this is definitely what I want to do uh, uh, I think this is you know this is the way to get there for me anyways as we had done when we studied judgment we engaged in a careful examination of our own intuitive preferences We spend our time inventing simple decision problems and asking ourselves how we would choose. For example, which do you prefer? Toss a coin. If it comes up heads, you win 100 bucks. And if it comes up tails, you win nothing. Get 46 for sure. We're not trying to figure out the most rational or advantageous choice. We want to find the intuitive choice, the one that appeared immediately tempting. We almost always selected the same option. In this example, both of us would have picked the sure thing and you probably would do the same. Okay, let's do that. That's important for me as a marketer because I give away free stuff that has value. People will opt into my email lists. And if people opt into my email lists, I can make money. Fact. Life-changing money. Fact. You want to get involved more on the email side of me? Go to email, uh, what is it, emailadventure.com. Or there's a Facebook group right now for emailadventure.com. Not much going on there right now, but... Uh, Email is definitely the backbone of the martial arts of money. It says here, so that basically what I do is like pattern recognition. That's what I've done in martial arts for years and other parts of my life. And now I'm into business and it comes just to humans. I don't have to do pattern recognition on other fighters (laughs) from a hand-to-hand combat expert. I just have to do it to compartmentalize my business and scale my business. In this example, both of us would have picked the sure thing and you probably would do the same. So that tells me humans will pick the sure thing. When we confidently agree on a choice, we believe almost always correctly as it turns out that most people would share our preference and we moved on as if we had solid evidence. We knew of course that we would need to verify our hunches later, but by playing the rules both experimenters and subjects, we were able to move quickly. Oh, this coffee is gross. I warmed it up from yesterday. didn't get warmed up enough. Five years after we begun our story of gambles, we finally completed an essay we titled Prospect Theory. And 
just going to pause for one second here, guys, is I'm sitting down in my chair, but sitting for too long is bad. And that's one of the, there's two issues to my chronic back pain. One is sleeping on my stomach and two is sitting at a chair for decades. So if you can hear this right now, I don't know if you can, but this is an adjustable desk electronic. It's moving up now. So now I'm standing on two yoga blocks and I like to stand on two yoga blocks because I, I kind of rock back and forth or I bounce kind of like I'm fighting in the ring or walking on a beam or something. Uh, and it helps my back and it might help your back too. An analysis of decision under risk. Our theory was closely modeled on utility theory, but departed from it in fundamental ways. Most important, our model was purely descriptive and its goal was to document and explain systematic violations of the axioms of rational, rationality and choices between gambles. We submitted our essay to Econ Econometrica, a journal that publishes significant theoretical articles in economics and decision theory. Hmm. The choice of venue turned out to be important. If we had published the identical paper in a psycho psychological journal, it would have likely had little impact on economics. Aha! However, our decision was not guided by a wish to influence economics. Economictra just happened to be where the best papers on decision-making had been published in the past, and we are aspiring to be in that company. So here's a perfect example of them using leverage to grow your, your agenda. In this choice, as in many others, were, we were lucky. Prospect theory turned out to be the most significant work we ever did. And our article is among the most often cited in the social sciences. Two years later, we published in Science an account of framing effects, large changes of preference that are sometimes caused by inconsensual variations in the wording of a choice problem. During the first five years we spent looking at how people make decisions, we established a dozen facts about choices between risky options. Several of these facts were in flat con contradiction to expected utility theory. I don't even know what utility theory is. Uh, uh, well, why don't we look that up on the dictionary.com just quickly. Yeah, in university, I remember there was a couple guys, and they, if, as, as long as they could repeat buzzwords in an articulated sentence, the teacher thought they were smart, and um, even though I didn't know, I knew they didn't know the definition of those words that they were using, and everyone was just kind of attracted to them, and, but when uh, test time comes along, you can get through the first couple years in, in a business university, years three and four they're pretty tough and you got to know your stuff to get through the tests for accounting anyways that's for sure there's no wiggle room around there you can't bs your way through that uh, anyways sorry yeah so the guys that were bsing third and fourth year they were struggling and the grades came out and everybody compares each other to grades weird I put in utility theory and dictionary app and said, did you mean adultery? I said, no.
utility. Uh, but the term has been It's an economics concept that although it is impossible to measure the utility derived from a good or service, it is usually possible to rank the alternatives in their order of preference to the customer, since the choice is con constrained by the price and the income of the customer, the rational consumer will not spend money on additional unit of a good or service unless it, its marginal utility is at least equal or to greater than that of a unit of another good or service. Therefore, the price of a good or service is related to its marginal utility, and the consumer will rank his or preference accordingly. Okay, basically, it's a fancy way of saying uh, make products that deliver value and you'll be able to build uh, a sustaining business. At least I'm speculating, but that's my approach. That's my philosophy. That's my principle. Bring value to the marketplace. So like my YouTube videos, you could really, it would mean a lot if you subscribe to my YouTube videos. Um, but uh, yeah, my YouTube videos, production quality sucks, but coming with value. I'm coming with value with everything I'm doing. So it's just a matter of time before uh, I, I compartmentalize my, my business processes and the marketplace will reward me. And I say that because I want that to happen for you. Yeah, so the uh, utility theory, if you make a crappy product or a product that is an inferior product and it's just a one-off that nobody needs again, and it's got a, it's just, it's just a bad product. It's just not good quality. People will talk about that. And uh, that's the law of attraction at work in a negative perspective. And you don't want that. During the first five years, we spent looking at how many people make decisions. We established a dozens of facts about choices between risky options. Several of these facts were in flat contradiction to the expected utility theory. Some have yeah see sorry to pause again here but here's the difference between um the theoretical educational world the phd level and kind of where i'm at with the practical matters of the real life fine now they're just so making these models and all this stuff and that's good but i'm in this like little vacuum in the center of the line of the, the axis, the mathematical axis that I've got all these smarter people, these smart people doing all these work and tests and whatever, and I get to use their information just by reading it and apply those lessons to my life to profit and to get better and to grow, to grow and get better, and which equals profit. So that's cool. Some had never observed, and so the, the flip side of that is, is okay, well, I've got unique experiences too. You've got unique experiences as well. So then that's where the martial arts of money comes in. You kind of create your own path, paint your own picture. Some have been observed before. A few were new. Then we constructed a theory that modified expected utility theory just enough to explain our collection of observations. That was prospect theory. Our approach to the problem was in the spirit of field of, of psychology called psychophysics which was founded and named by the German psychologist and mystic Gustav Fencher. Fencher was obsessed with re the relation of mind and matter. 
on one side there is a physical quantity that can vary such as the energy of light the frequency of a tone or amount of money on the other side there is a subjective experience of brightness pitch or value let me shut my window there's some construction going on Oh, actually, I'm going to keep it. Oh, that's not construction, man. That sounds like a piping band. Yeah, bud, the Scots are here. <laughs> I'll bring my guitar. Okay, anyways. <sighs> On the other side, there is a subjective experience of brightness, pitch, or value. Mysteriously, variations of the physical quantity cause variations in the intensity or quality of the subjective experience. Fencher's project was to find the psycho physical laws that relate the subjective quantity in the observer's mind to the objective quantity in the material world. He proposed that for many dimensions the function is logarithmic, which simply means that an increase of stimulus intensity given by a factor of say 1.5 or, or times 10 will always yield the same incremental on psychological side if raising the energy of the sound from 10 to 100 units of physical energy increases psychological intensity by 4 units, then a number of increase of stimulus intensity from 100 to 1000 will also increase psychological intensity units by 4 units. Huh? <laughs> Bernoulli's error. As Fencher well knew, he was not the first to look for a function that relates to psychological intensity to the physical magnitude of the stimulus. In 1738, the Swiss scientist Daniel Bernoulli anticipated Fechner's reason and applied it to the relationship between the psychological value or desirability of money, now called utility. Okay, I want to pause. To the relationship between the psychological value or desirability of money. Okay, so that's what Bernoulli did. This section is called Bernoulli's error. He argued that a gift of 10 ductas, which I don't know what it is, let's see what ductas is. It's probably some kind of. Uh, That's Latin. Uh, oh, it doesn't even Wikipedia or Wiktionary doesn't even have anything in it. Interesting. <laughs> this duck test Twitter, it's like some cat with a, a hat on. Duck test. It's some kind of measurement. Let's just call it 10 bucks. He argued that a gift of $10 has the same utility to someone who already has $100 as a gift of $20 to someone who currently has a wealth of $200. Bernoulli was right, of course. We normally speak of changes of income in terms of percentages. So we got a 30% raise. The idea is that 30% raise may invoke a fairly similar psychology response for rich and for poor, which 
an increase to 100 will not do. $100. As in Fetchner's law, the psych psychological response to the change in wealth is inversely proportionate to the amount, to the initial amount of wealth, leading to the conclusion that utility is a logarithmic function of wealth. If this function is accurate, the same psychological distance separates $100,000 from $1 million and $10 million from $100 million. Bernoulli drew on his psychological insight into the utility of wealth to propose a radical new approach to the evaluation of gambles, an important topic for the mathematicians of his day. Prior to Bernoulli, mathematicians had assumed that gambles are assessed by their expected value, a weighted average of the possible outcomes where each outcome is weighted by its probability. For example, the expected value of 80% chance to win $100 and 20% chance to win 10 is 82. Uh, 0.8 times 100 plus 0.2 times 10. Well, that's the weighted average formula, 82. Now ask yourself from this question, which would you prefer to receive as a gift? This gamble or $80 for sure? Almost everyone prefers the sure thing. I'm going to highlight that again because that's going to help me in my marketing career. My salesman. I've never done sales, so that's what I'm going to do. If people valued uncertain prospects by their expected value, they would prefer the gamble because 82 is more than 80. Bernoulli pointed out that people do not, in fact, evaluate, evaluate gambles in this way. Bernoulli observed that most people dislike risk and wish to avoid the worst outcome. If offered a choice between a gamble and an equal and an amount equal to its expected value, they'll pick the sure thing. In fact, a risk-adverse decision-maker will choose a sure thing that is less than expected value, in effect paying a premium to avoid uncertainty. Pay a premium to avoid... That's cool. Pay a premium to avoid uncertainty. That's why the, the only thing more expensive than paying a professional is paying an amateur. Uh, you want me to be your accountant. 100 years before Fetchner, Bernoulli invented psychophysics to explain this aversion to risk. His idea was straightforward. People's choice are based not on dollar value, but on psychological values of outcomes, their utilities. The psychological value of a gamble is therefore not the weighted average of its possible dollar outcomes. It is the average of the utilities in these outcomes, each weighted by its probability. Table 3 shows a version of the utility function that Bernoulli calculated it presents the utility of different levels of wealth from 1 million to 10 million. You can see that adding 1 million to a wealth of 1 million yields an increment of 30 utility points. But adding 1 million to a wealth of 9 million adds only 4 points. Bernoulli proposed that the diminishing marginal value of wealth in the modern jargon is what explains risk aversion, the common preference that people generally show for a sure thing over a favorable gamble of equal or slightly higher expected value. Consider this choice. Equal chances to have one or seven million or four million with certainty. The expected value of the gamble and the sure thing are equal in ductas, which is say dollars, but the psychological utilities of the two options are different because of the diminishing utility of wealth increases. The increment of utility from 1 to 4 million is 60 units, but an equal increment from 
427 million increases the utility of which by only 24 units. The utility of uh, the utility of the gamble is 84 divided by 2 equals 42. The utility of its two outcomes each weighted by its probability of one half. The utility of 4 million is 60 because 60 is more than 42. An individual with this utility function would prefer the sure thing. Bernoulli's insight was that a decision maker with diminishing marginal utility for wealth will be risk adverse. Bernoulli's essays is a marvel of conscious brilliance. He applied his new concept of expected utility, which he called moral expectation, to compute how much a merchant in St. Petersburg will be paying for in, to ensure a shipment of spice from Amsterdam. If he is well aware the fact that this time of year of 100 ships which will sail from Amsterdam to Petersburg, five are usually lost. His utility function explained why poor people buy insurance and why rich people sell it to them. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm just going to... Uh, poor people buy insurance. Richer people sell it to them. That's crazy. That's crazy. As you can see, but it's true. It's true. It's how it works. Um, you want to be an orca or you want to be a penguin? Pick. As you can see in the table, the loss of 1 million causes a loss of four points of utility from 100 to 96 to someone who has 10 million and a much larger loss of 18 points from 48 to 30 to someone who starts off with 3 million. The poor man will happily pay a premium to transfer the risk to the richer one, which is what insurance is all about. Bernoulli, uh, Bernoulli also offered a solution to the famous St. Peter's parad paradox in which people who are afforded a gamble that has infinite expected values are willing to spend only a few dollars for it. Most impressive, his analysis of risk attitudes in terms of preferences for wealth has stood the test of time. It is still current in economic analysis almost 300 years later. The longevity of the theory is all the more remarkable because it is seriously flawed. The errors of a theory are rarely found in what it asserts explicitly. They hide in what it ignores or tactically assumes. For example, take the following scenarios. Today, Jack and Jill each have a wealth of $5 million. Yesterday, Jack had $1 million and Jill had $9 million. Are they equally happy? Do they have the same utility? Bernoulli's theory assumes that the utility of their wealth is what makes people more or less happy. Jack and Jill have the same wealth and theory, therefore asserts that they should be equally happy, but you do not need a degree in psychology to know that today Jack is elated and Jill despondent. Indeed, we know that Jack would be a great deal happier if than Jill if he had only two million today while she has five. So Bernoulli's theory must be wrong. The happiness that Jack and Jill experience is determined by the recent change in their wealth relative to the different states of wealth that define their reference points. 1 million for Jack, 9 million for Jill. This reference dependent is ubiquitous in sensation and perception. The same sound will be experienced as very loud or quite faint depending on whether it was preceded by a whisper or by a roar to predict the subjective experience of loudness. It is not enough to know the, its absolute energy. You also need to know 
the reference sound to which it is automatically compared. Similarly, you need to know about the background before you can predict whether a gray patch on a page will appear dark or light. And you need to know the reference before you can predict the utility of an ultimate wealth, an amount of wealth. You need to know the reference point before you can predict, predict the utility of ultimate amount of wealth. For another example of what Bernoulli's theory misses, consider Anthony and Betty. Anthony's current wealth is $1 million. Betty's current wealth is $4 million. They are offered a choice between a gamble and a sure thing. The gamble equals chances to end up owning $1 million or $4 million or the sure thing or $2 million for sure. In Bernoulli's account, Anthony and Betty face the same choice. Their expected wealth will be $2.5 million if they take the gamble and $2 million if they prefer the sure thing option. Bernoulli would therefore expect Anthony and Betty to make the same choice, but this prediction is incorrect. Here again, the theory fails because it shows not only for the different reference points from which Anthony and Betty consider their options, if you imagine yourself in Anthony and Betty's shoes, you will quickly see that the current wealth matters a great deal. Here is how they may think. Anthony, who currently owns $1 million, if I choose a certain thing, my wealth will double with certainty. That is very attractive. Alternatively, I can take a gamble with equal chances to quadruple my wealth or to gain nothing. Betty, who currently owns $4 million, if I choose a sure thing, I lose half of my wealth with certainty, which is awful. Alternatively, I can take a gamble with equal chances to lose three-quarters of my wealth or to lose nothing. You can see that Anthony and Betty are likely to make different choices because the sure thing of option of owning $2 million makes Anthony happy and makes Betty miserable. I mean, this is getting at basically everyone has a different decision tree when they're making decisions about their own money. Note also how the, the sure outcomes differ from the worst outcome of the gamble. For Anthony, it is different. It is the difference between doubling his wealth and gaining for nothing. For Betty, it is the difference between losing half her wealth and losing three quarters of it. Betty is much more likely to take her chances as others do when faced with very bad options. As I have told their story, neither Anthony nor Betty thinks in terms of states of wealth. Anthony thinks of gains and Betty thinks of losses. The psychological outcomes they assess are entirely different, although the possible states of wealth they face are the same. Because Bernoulli's model lacks the idea of a reference point, expected utility theory does not represent the obvious fact that the outcomes is good for Anthony and is bad for Betty. His model could explain Anthony's gamble, a behavior that is often observed in entrepreneurs and in generals when all their options are bad. All this is rather obvious, isn't it? One could easily imagine Bernoulli himself constructing similar examples and developing a more complex theory to accommodate them for reasons he did not. You could also imagine colleagues of his time disagreeing with him or later scholars objecting that they read his essay for the same reason they did not either. Just one second. I want to see when this, how long this Bernoulli guy was alive because it's important.
The mystery is how a conception of utility of outcomes that is vulnerable to such obvious counterexamples survived for so long. I can explain it only by a weakness of the scholarly mind that I have often observed in myself. I call it theory-induced blindness. Once you have accepted a theory and use it as a tool in your thinking, it is extraordinarily difficult to notice its flaws. If you come upon an observation that does not seem to fit the model, you assume that there must be a perfectly good explanation that you are somehow missing. You give the theory the benefit of the doubt, trusting the community of experts who have accepted it. Many scholars have surely thought at one time or another of stories such as those of Anthony and Betty or Jack and Jill and casually noted that these stories did not jibe with utility theory. But they did not pursue the idea of, to the point of saying this theory is seriously wrong because it ignores the facts that utility depends on the history of one's wealth, not only the, on present wealth. Bingo. Bingo. As the psychologist Daniel Gilbert observed, disbelieving is hard work and system two is easily tired. Speaking of Bernoulli's errors, he was happy with two $20,000 bonus three years ago, but his salary has gone up 20% since, so he need a higher bonus to get the same utility. Yeah, so this last part, what he does is, because this is pretty like, you know, this is next level stuff. It's pretty, uh, pretty detailed, pretty system two provoking, a lot of details, a lot of numbers and utility this and that. So what uh, this author does, uh, here we go. 1887, I don't know when Bernoulli, he doesn't say Bernoulli. Um, but at the end of every chapter, he gives like a couple like practical examples of people speaking with his theories in practical use. And here it is, speaking of Bernoulli's heirs. He was very happy with the $20,000 bonus three years ago, but his salary has gone up 20% since, so he will need a higher bonus to get the same utility. Both candidates are willing to accept the salaries we're offering but they won't be equally satisfied because their reference reference points are different. She currently has a much higher salary. She's suing him for alimony. She will actually like to settle, but he prefers to go to court. That's not surprising. She can only gain. She So she's risk adverse. He, on the other hand, faces options that are all bad. He'd rather take the risk. So that concludes today's chapter. Tomorrow's chapter will be 26, Prospect Theory. Ooh, sounds exciting. Um, I'm finding uh, gains by restricting myself to one chapter a day of both of these books, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow and Principles. And it gives me, I look forward to tomorrow to read the next chapter. So, and that way I kind of pace myself and keep myself disciplined. And uh, uh, my mentor says to make sure you read and write the same amount. And now I'm starting to vocalize. So we'll see where this goes. Anyways, thank you. I uh, hope you got some value out of this. Uh, drop me a line, uh, send me an email, uh, hit me up on uh, the martial arts of money on the Facebook group and we'll go from there. Peace. Okay. Okay. What's up internet? Um, this is an attempt of me trying to get streamlined processes. So this app I'm using, it's called anchor. And it's a great piece of technology, and y'all should use it if uh, you want to do podcasting and whatnot. Uh, so, what the, this vlog is supposed to do, it's supposed to put the this chapter I'm going to read. It's part four of the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kamen. 
Nobel Prize winner in economics. Part 4, Choices. Chapter 25, Bernoulli's Errors. Now, this is supposed to put this segment into the entire clip, I think, of this print, um, thinking fast, thinking slow. So, we'll see how that goes. Instead of, because every time I make a, a podcast on Anchor, it just, I publish it as a new episode. So, you can do, like, segments for each episode, kind of like doing series. So, for example, on Medium, you can write, you know, chapters. I probably should start writing my book, The Martial Arts of Money, and start with a chapter. Anyways, out of context, so let's dive right into it. This is 10 pages, probably going to be half hour, 45 minutes vlog. It's Saturday morning, 8 a.m. Let's do this. One day in the early 1970s, Amos handed me a mimeographed essay by a Swiss economist named Bruno Frey, which discussed the psychological assumptions of economic theory. I vividly remember the color of the cover, dark red. Bruno Frey barely recalls writing the piece, but I can still recite its first sentence. The agent of economic theory is rational, selfish, and his tastes do not change. Let me read that again. The agent of economic theory is rational selfish and his taste does not change yep that's where no matter what that's where i talk penguin logic and business so economic theory orca eagle but when it comes down to the you i think like compare that to like a black belt in jujitsu uh, compared to you can break any business scenario down to a transaction every business scenario has transactions you can break that down to penguin logic so this is like the blue belt of jiu-jitsu the white belt i was astonished my economist colleague colleagues worked in the building next door but i had not appreciated the profound difference between our intellectual worlds to a psychologist it is self-evident that people are neither fully rational nor completely selfish, and that their tastes are anything but stable. Our two disciplines seem to be studying different species, which the behavioral economics Richard Thaler later dubbed econs and humans. Unlike econs, the humans that were psychologists know have a system one. Their view of the world is limited by the information that is available at the given moment. What you see is all there is. And therefore, they cannot be as consistent and logical as econs. They are sometimes generous and often willing to contribute to the group to which they are attached. And they often have the little idea of what they will like next year or even tomorrow. Here was an opportunity for an interesting conversation across the boundaries of disciplines. I do not anticipate that my career will be defined by the conversation. Soon after he showed me Frey's article, Amos suggested that we make the study of decision-making our next project. I knew nothing about the topic, but Amos was an expert and a star of the field, and he said he would coach me. 
While still a graduate student, he had co-authored a textbook, Mathematical Psychology. Ooh, interesting. Wow. Mathematical Psychology. Ooh, that's interesting. And he directed me to a few chapters that he thought would be a good introduction. I soon learned that our subject matter would be people's attitudes to risky options and that we would seek to answer a specific question. What rules govern people's choices between different simple gambles and between gambles and sure things? Simple gambles such as 40% chance to win 300 bucks are to students of decision making what the fruit fly is to geneticists. Choices between such gambles provide a simple model that share, shares important features with the more complex decisions that researchers actually aim to understand. Gambles represent the fact that the consequences of choice are never certain. Even ostensibly sure, outcomes are uncertain. When I need to pause and preface. I don't know if I should, but maybe I should. It's the Martial Arts of Money podcast. That's what it is. I guess I can talk whatever I want to talk. I have for sure ways to make money. Like I do with machines. And um, just a side rant here, but... Uh, personal note, it's, <clears throat> I got to tell you, man, it's frustrating knowing that I have a pipeline and I found the gold. Like there's that movie uh, with uh, Matthew McConaughey where they find the gold or whatever and they know the gold's there, but they got to get the gold out. And that's kind of what, where I'm at. That's cool. Anyways, keep going. Sorry about that. I don't even know if I should apologize. Probably shouldn't apologize for that. Anyway, this is new for me. I'm, I'm just learning every day, guys. Uh, when you sign the contract to buy an apartment, you do not know the price at which you later may have to sell it. Nor do you know that your neighbor's son will soon take up the tuba. <laughs> That's like me moving into my new apartment. They don't know Dudester's coming. Uh, every significant choice we make in life comes with some uncertainty, which is why students of decision-making hope that some of the lessons learned in the model situation will be applicable to more interesting everyday problems. But of course, the main reason that decision theorists study simple gambles is that this is what other decision theorists do. The field had a theory, expected utility theory, which was the foundation of rational agent model and is to this day the most important theory in the social sciences. Expected utility theory was not intended as a psychological model. It was a logical, it was a logic of choice. Based on elementary rules, axioms of rationality, consider this simple. If you have an, if you prefer an apple to a banana, then you are, you also prefer 10% chance to win an apple to a 10% chance to win a banana. The apple and the banana stand for objects of choice, including gambles, and the 10% stands for any probability. The mathematician John von Neumann, one of the giant intellectual figures of the 20th century, and the economist Oscar Morgenstern, had derived their theory of rational choice. Between gambles from a few axioms, economists adopted expected utility theory in a dual rule as a logic that prescribes how decisions should be made. And as a description of how econs make choices, Amos and I were psych psychologists. 
However, we set out to understand how humans actually make risky choices without assuming anything about their rationality. We maintained our routine of spending many hours each day in conversation, sometimes in our offices, sometimes at restaurants, often on long walks through quiet streets of beautiful Jerusalem. I, I want to work like this guy. So I don't know where you go or how you work with people that work like this, but this is definitely what I want to do. Uh, uh, I think this is, you know, this is the way to get there for me anyways. As we had done when we studied judgment, we engaged in a careful examination of our own intuitive preferences. We spend our time inventing simple decision problems and asking ourselves how we would choose. For example, which do you prefer? Toss a coin. If it comes up heads, you win 100 bucks, and if it comes up tails, you win nothing. Get 46 for sure. <clears throat> We're not trying to figure out the most rational or advantageous choice. We want to find the intuitive choice, the one that appeared immediately tempting. We almost always selected the same option. In this example, both of us would have picked the sure thing, and you probably would do the same. Okay, let's do that. That's important for me as a marketer because I give away free stuff that has value. People will opt into my email lists. And if people opt into my email lists, I can make money. Fact. Life-changing money. Fact. If you want to get involved more on the email side of me, go to email, uh, what is it, emailadventure.com. There's a Facebook group right now for emailadventure.com. Not much going on there right now, but uh, yeah. Email is definitely the backbone of the martial arts of money. It says here, so that basically what I do is like pattern recognition. It's what I've done in martial arts for years and other parts of my life and now into business and it comes just to humans I don't have to do pattern recognition on other fighters <laughs> from a hand-to-hand -hand combat expert I just have to do it to compartmentalize my business and scale my business in this example both of us would have picked the sure thing and you probably would do the same so that tells me humans will pick the sure thing when we confidently agree on a choice, we believe almost always correctly, as it turns out that most people would share our preference, and we moved on as if we had solid evidence. We knew, of course, that we would need to verify our hunches later, but by playing the rules, both experimenters and subjects, we were able to move quickly. Oh, this coffee's gross. I warmed it up from yesterday. didn't get warmed up enough. Five years after we begun our story of gambles, we finally completed an essay we titled Prospect Theory. And <clears throat> just going to pause for one second here, guys, is I'm sitting down in my chair, but sitting for too long is bad. And that's one of the, there's two issues to my chronic back pain. One is sleeping on my stomach and two is sitting at a chair for decades. So if you can hear this right now, I don't know if you can, but this is an adjustable desk electronic. It's moving up now. So... Now I'm standing on two yoga blocks and I like to stand on two yoga blocks because I, I kind of rock back and forth or I bounce kind of like I'm fighting in the ring or walking on a beam or something uh, and it helps my back and it might help your back too. An analysis of decision under risk. Our theory was closely modeled on utility theory but departed from it in fundamental ways. Most important, our model was purely descriptive and its goal was to document 
and explain systematic violations of the axioms of rational, rationality and choices between gambles. We submitted our essay to Econometrica, a journal that publishes significant theoretical articles in economics and decision theory. Hmm. The choice of venue turned out to be important. If we had published the identical paper in a psycho psychological journal, it would have likely had little impact on economics. Aha! However, our decision was not guided by a wish to influence economics. Economictra just happened to be where the best papers on decision-making had been published in the past, and we were aspiring to be in that company. So here's a perfect example of them using leverage. To grow your your agenda in this choice as in many others were we were lucky prospect theory turned out to be the most significant work we ever did and our article is among the most often cited in the social sciences two years later we published in science an account of framing effects large changes of preference that are sometimes caused by inconsensual variations in the wording of a choice problem during the first five years we spent looking at how people make decisions. We established a dozen facts about choices between risky options. Several of these facts were in flat con contradiction to expected utility theory. I don't even know what utility theory is. Um, um, well, why don't we look that up on the dictionary.com just quickly. Yeah, in university, I remember there was a couple guys, and they, if, as, as long as they could repeat buzzwords in an articulated sentence, the teacher thought they were smart, and um, even though I didn't know, I knew they didn't know the definition of those words that they were using, and everyone was just kind of attracted to them, and, but when uh, test time comes along, you can get through the first couple years in, in a business university, but years three and four, they're pretty tough. And you got to know your stuff to get through the tests, for accounting anyways, that's for sure. There's no wiggle room around there. You can't BS your way through that. Uh, anyways, sorry. Yeah, so the guys that were BSing, third and fourth year, they were struggling, and the grades came out. And everybody compares each other to grades. Weird. I put in utility theory and dictionary app and said, did you mean adultery? I said, no. Utility, uh, but the term has been a—it's uh, an economics concept that although it is impossible to measure the utility derived from a good or service, it is usually possible to rank the alternatives in their order of preference to the customer. Since the choice is con constrained by the price and the income of the customer, the rational consumer will not spend money on additional unit of a good or service unless it, its marginal utility is at least equal or to greater than that of a unit of another good or service. Therefore, the price of a good or service is related to its marginal utility. 
and the consumer will rank his or her preference accordingly. Okay, basically, it's a fancy w way of saying uh, make products that deliver value, and you'll be able to build uh, a sustaining business. At least I'm speculating, but that's my approach. That's my philosophy. That's my principle. Bring value to the marketplace. So, like my YouTube videos, you could really paid me a lot if you subscribe to my YouTube videos. Um, but uh, yeah, my YouTube videos production quality sucks, but coming with value. I'm coming with value with everything I'm doing. So it's just a matter of time before uh, I, I compartmentalize my, my business processes and the marketplace will reward me. And I say that because I want that to happen for you. Yeah, so the uh, utility theory, if you make a crappy product or a product that is an inferior product and it's just a one-off that nobody needs again, and it's got a, it's just, it's just a bad product. It's just not good quality. People will talk about that. And uh, that's the law of attraction at work in a negative perspective. And you don't want that. During the first five years, we spent looking at how many people make decisions. We established a dozens of facts about choices between risky options. Several of these facts were in flat contradiction to the expected utility theory. Some have yeah see sorry to pause again here but here's the difference between um the theoretical educational world the phd level and kind of where i'm at with the practical matters of the real life fine now there's so many making these models and all this stuff and that's good but i'm in this like little vacuum in the center of the line of the, the axis, the mathematical axis that you've got all these smarter people or these smart people doing all these work and tests and whatever and I get to use their information just by reading it and apply those lessons to my life to profit and to get better and to grow, to grow and get better and which equals profit. So that's cool. Some had never observed and so the, the flip side of that is, is okay well I've got unique experiences too. You've got unique experiences as well. So, and that's where the martial arts of money comes in. You kind of create your own path, paint your own picture. Some have been observed before. A few were new. Then we constructed a theory that modified expected utility theory just enough to explain our collection of observations. That was prospect theory. Our approach to the problem was in the spirit of field of, of psychology called psychophysics which was founded and named by the German psychologist and mystic Gustav Fencher. Fencher was obsessed with re the relation of mind and matter. On one side, there is a physical quantity that can vary, such as the energy of light, the frequency of a tone, or the amount of money. On the other side, there is a subjective experience of brightness, pitch, or value. Let me shut my window here. Some construction going on. Oh, actually, I'm going to keep building. That's not construction, man. That sounds like a piping band. Yeah, bud, the Scots are here. Let's <laughs> go bring my guitar. Okay, anyways.
On the other side, there is a subjective experience of brightness, pitch, or value. Mysteriously, variations of the physical quantity cause variations in the intensity or quality of the subjective experience. Fencher's project was to find the psychophysical laws that relate the subjective quantity in the observer's mind to the objective quantity in the material world. He proposed that for many dimensions, the function is logarithmic, which simply means that an increase of stimulus intensity given by a factor of, say, 1.5 or, or times 10 will always yield the same incremental on psychological side. If raising the energy of the sound from 10 to 100 units of physical energy increases psychological intensity by 4 units, then the number of increase of stimulus intensity from 100 to 1,000 will also increase psychological intensity units by four units. Huh? <laughs> Bernoulli's error. As Fencher well knew, he was not the first to look for a function that relates to psychological intensity to the physical magnitude of the stimulus. In 1738, the Swiss scientist Daniel Bernoulli anticipated Fechner's reason and applied it to the relationship between the psychological value or desirability of money, now called utility. Okay, I want to pause. To the relationship between the psychological value or desirability of money. Okay, so that's what Bernoulli did. This section is called Bernoulli's Error. He argued that a gift of 10 ducktas, which I don't know what it is, let's see what ducktas is. It's probably some kind of, uh, some other kind of currency. That's Latin. Uh, oh, it doesn't even, Wikipedia or Wiktionary doesn't even have anything in it. Interesting. This duck test Twitter, it's like some cat with a, a hat on. I don't know. Duck test, it's some kind of measurement. Let's just call it 10 bucks. He argued that a gift of $10 has the same utility to someone who already has $100 as a gift of $20 to someone who currently has a wealth of $200. Bernoulli was right, of course. We normally... Speak of changes of income in terms of percentages, say we got a 30% raise. The idea is that 30% raise may invoke a fairly similar psychology response for rich and for poor, which an increase to 100 will not do. $100. As in Fechner's law, the psych psychological response to the change in wealth is inversely proportionate to the amount, to the initial amount of wealth, leading to the conclusion that Utility is a logarithmic function of wealth. If this function is accurate, the same psychological distance separates $100,000 from $1 million and $10 million from $100 million. Bernoulli drew on a psychological insight into the utility of wealth to propose a radical new approach to the evaluation of gambles, an important topic for the mathematicians of his day. Prior to Bernoulli, mathematicians 
I'd assume that gambles are assessed by their expected value, a weighted average of the possible outcomes where each outcome is weighted by its probability. For example, the expected value of 80% chance to win $100 and 20% chance to win 10 is 82. Uh, 0.8 times 100 plus 0.2 times 10. Well, that's the weighted average formula, 82. Now we ask yourself in this question, which would you prefer to receive as a gift? This gamble or $80 for sure? Almost everyone prefers the sure thing. I'm gonna highlight that again because that's gonna help me in my marketing career. My salesman, I've never done sales, so that's what I'm gonna do. If people valued uncertain prospects by their expected value, they would prefer the gamble because 82 is more than 80. Bernoulli pointed out that people do not in fact devalue, evaluate gambles in this way. Bernoulli observed that most people dislike risk and wish to avoid the worst outcome. If offered a choice between a gamble and an equal and an amount equal to its expected value, they'll pick the sure thing. In fact, a risk adverse decision maker will choose a sure thing that is less than expected value, in effect paying a premium to avoid uncertainty. premium to avoid that's cool pay a premium to avoid uncertainty that's why the the only thing more expensive than paying a professional is paying an amateur uh, you want me to be your accountant 100 years before Fetchner Bernoulli invented psychophysics to explain this aversion to risk his idea was straightforward people's choice are based not on dollar value but on psychological values of outcomes their utilities the psychological value of a gamble is therefore not the weighted average of its possible dollar outcomes. It is the average of the utilities in these outcomes, each weighted by its probability. Table 3 shows a version of the utility function that Bernoulli calculated. It presents the utility of different levels of wealth from 1 million to 10 million. You can see that adding 1 million to a wealth of 1 million yields an increment of 30 utility points. But adding 1 million to a wealth of 9 million adds only 4 points. Bernoulli proposed that the diminishing marginal value of wealth in the mar modern jargon is what explains risk aversion, the common preference that people generally show for a sure thing over a favorable gamble of equal or slightly higher expected value. Consider this choice. Equal chances to have 1 or 7 million or 4 million with certainty. The expected value of the gamble and the sure thing are equal in ductas, which is say dollars, but the psychological utilities of the two options are different because of the diminishing utility of wealth increases. The increment of utility from one to four million is 60 units, but an equal increment from four to seven million increases the utility of which by only 24 units. The utility uh, the utility of the gamble is 84 divided by 2 equals 42. The utility of its two outcomes, each weighted by its probability of one half. The utility of 4 million is 60 because 60 is more than 42. An individual with this utility function would prefer the sure thing. Bernoulli's insight was that a decision maker with diminishing marginal utility for wealth will be risk adverse. Bernoulli's essays is a marvel of conscious brilliance. He applied his new concept of expected utility, which he called moral expectation, to compute how much a merchant in St. Petersburg will be paying for in, to ensure a shipment of spice from Amsterdam. 
if he is well aware the fact that this time of year of 100 ships which will sail from Amsterdam to Petersburg, five are usually lost. His utility function explain why poor people buy insurance and why rich people sell it to them. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm just going to... Uh, poor people buy insurance. Richer people sell it to them. That's crazy. That's crazy. As you can see, but it's true. It's true. It's how it works. Um, you want to be an orca or you want to be a penguin? Pick. As you can see in the table, the loss of 1 million causes a loss of 4 points of utility from 100 to 96 to someone who has 10 million and a much larger loss of 18 points from 48 to 30 to someone who starts off with 3 million. The poor man will happily pay a premium to transfer the risk to the richer one, which is what insurance is all about. Bernoulli, uh, Bernoulli also offered a solution to the famous St. Peter's parad paradox in which people who are afforded a gamble that has infinite expected values are willing to spend only a few dollars for it. Most impressive, his analysis of risk attitudes in terms of preferences for wealth has stood the test of time. It is still current in economic analysis almost 300 years later. The longevity of the theory is all the more remarkable because it is seriously flawed. The errors of a theory are rarely found in what it asserts explicitly. They hide in what it ignores or tactically assumes. For example, take the following scenarios. Today, Jack and Jill each have a wealth of $5 million. Yesterday, Jack had $1 million and Jill had $9 million. Are they equally happy? Do they have the same utility? Bernoulli's theory assumes that the utility of their wealth is what makes people more or less happy. Jack and Jill have the same wealth and theory, therefore asserts that they should be equally happy, but you do not need a degree in psychology to know that today Jack is elated and Jill despondent. Indeed, we know that Jack would be a great deal happier if, than Jill if he had only two million today while she has five. So Bernoulli's theory must be wrong. The happiness that Jack and Jill experience is determined by the recent change in their wealth relative to the different states of wealth that define their reference points. One million for Jack, nine million for Jill. This reference dependent is ubiquitous in sensation and perception. The same sound will be experienced as very loud or quite faint depending on whether it was preceded by a whisper or by a roar to predict the subjective experience of loudness. It is not enough to know the, its absolute energy. You also need to know the reference sound to which it is automatically compared. Similarly, you need to know about the background before you can predict whether a gray patch on a page will appear dark or light. And you need to know the reference before you can predict the utility of an ultimate wealth, an amount of wealth. You need to know the reference point before you can predict, predict the utility of ultimate amount of wealth. For another example of what Bernoulli's theory misses, consider Anthony and Betty. Anthony's current wealth is one million. Betty's current wealth is four million. They are offered a choice between a gamble and a sure thing. The gamble equals chances to end up owning one million or four million or the sure thing or two million for sure. In Bernoulli's account, Anthony and Betty face the same choice. Their expected wealth will be 2.5 million if they take the gamble and 2 million if they prefer the sure thing option. Bernoulli would therefore expect 
Anthony and Betty to make the same choice, but this prediction is incorrect. Here again, the theory fails because it shows not only for the different reference points from which Anthony and Betty consider their options, if you imagine yourself in Anthony and Betty's shoes, you will quickly see that the current wealth matters a great deal. Here is how they may think. Anthony, who currently owns $1 million, if I choose a certain thing, my wealth will double with certainty. That is very attractive. Alternatively, I can take a gamble with equal chances to quadruple my wealth or to gain nothing. Betty, who currently owns $4 million, if I choose a sure thing, I lose half of my wealth with certainty, which is awful. Alternatively, I can take a gamble with equal chances to lose three-quarters of my wealth or to lose nothing. You can see that Anthony and Betty are likely to make different choices because the sure thing of option of owning $2 million makes Anthony happy and makes Betty miserable. I mean, this is getting at basically everyone has a different decision tree when they're making decisions about their own money. Note also how the, the sure outcomes differ from the worst outcome of the gamble. For Anthony, it is different. It is the difference between doubling his wealth and gaining for nothing. For Betty, it is the difference between losing half her wealth and losing three quarters of it. Betty is much more likely to take her chances as others do when faced with very bad options. As I have told their story, neither Anthony nor Betty thinks in terms of states of wealth. Anthony thinks of gains and Betty thinks of losses. The psychological outcomes they assess are entirely different, although the possible states of wealth they face are the same. Because Bernoulli's model lacks the idea of a reference point, expected utility theory does not represent the obvious fact that the outcomes is good for Anthony and it's bad for Betty. His model could explain Anthony's gamble, a behavior that is often observed in entrepreneurs and in generals when all their options are bad. All this is rather obvious, isn't it? One could easily imagine Bernoulli himself constructing similar examples and developing a more complex theory to accommodate them for reasons he did not. He could also imagine colleagues of his time disagreeing with him or later scholars objecting that they read his essay for the same reason they did not either. Just one second. I want to see when this, how long this Bernoulli guy was alive because it's important. The mystery is how a conception of utility of outcomes that is vulnerable to such obvious counterexamples survived for so long. I can explain it only by a weakness of the scholarly mind that I have often observed in myself. I call it theory-induced blindness. Once you have accepted a theory and use it as a tool in your thinking, it is extraordinarily difficult to notice its flaws. If you come upon an observation that does not seem to fit the model, you assume that there must be a perfectly good explanation that you are somehow missing. You give the theory the benefit of the doubt, trusting the community of experts who have accepted it. Many scholars have surely thought at one time or another of stories such as those of Anthony and Betty or Jack and Jill and casually noted that these stories 
did not jibe with utility theory, but they did not pursue the idea of, to the point of saying, this theory is seriously wrong because it ignores the facts that utility depends on the history of one's wealth, not only the, on present wealth. Bingo. Bingo. As the psychologist Daniel Gilbert observed, disbelieving is hard work and system two is easily tired. Speaking of Bernoulli's errors, he was happy with two $20,000 bonus three years ago, but his salary has gone up 20% since, so he need a higher bonus to get the same utility. Yeah, so this last part, what he does is, because this is pretty like, you know, this is next level stuff. It's pretty, uh, pretty detailed, pretty system two provoking, a lot of details, a lot of numbers and utility this and that. So what uh, this author does, uh, here we go. 1887, I don't know when Bernoulli, it doesn't say Bernoulli. Um, but at the end of every chapter, he gives like a couple like practical examples of people speaking with his theories in practical use. And here it is, speaking of Bernoulli's errors. He was very happy with a $20,000 bonus three years ago, but his salary has gone up 20% since, so he will need a higher bonus to get the same utility. Both candidates are willing to accept the salaries we're offering but they won't be equally satisfied because their reference reference points are different. She currently has a much higher salary. She's suing him for alimony. She will actually like to settle, but he prefers to go to court. That's not surprising. She can only gain. She So she's risk adverse. He, on the other hand, faces options that are all bad. He'd rather take the risk. So that concludes today's chapter. Tomorrow's chapter will be 26, Prospect Theory. Ooh, sounds exciting. Um, I'm finding uh, gains by restricting myself to one chapter a day of both of these books, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow and Principles. And it gives me, I look forward to tomorrow to read the next chapter. So, and that way I kind of pace myself and keep myself disciplined. And uh, uh, my mentor says to make sure you read and write the same amount. And now I'm starting to vocalize. So we'll see where this goes. Anyways, thank you. I uh, hope you got some value out of this. Uh, drop me a line. Uh, send me an email. Uh, hit me up on uh, the Martial Arts of Money on the Facebook group. And we'll go from there. Peace.